Gracious Lord, thank you for this day and for this assembly and this opportunity to share in your kingdom and in your gospel. Bless my words that I speak, that they might be your words, my lips that they might speak your word, our ears that they might hear your word, our minds to understand it, our hearts to be stirred by it, and our wills to be turned by it, that we might do your will on earth as it is done in heaven. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Can you hear me? Are you listening? I was delighted to find in your service leaflet on page 9 the doxology that you sing, and I've never seen this doxology sung this way anyplace else. For not only do you say, praise God from whom all blessings flow, but you also say, our Father's God to thee, author of liberty, to thee we sing. Long may our land be bright with freedom's holy light. Protect us by thy might, great God, our King. And that so dovetails with my own thoughts, reflections, and study in the last couple of years where I've been using the month of July and July 4th to ground my congregations in the importance of freedom and what we accomplished through our founding fathers with the establishment of freedom. I started often by thinking about my own thoughts was why and how is the French Revolution so different from the American Revolution, or the other way around? And why did the Tocqueville, that English aristocrat in the, in the mid-1820s, come to this country to study democracy in this country because the efforts in France had been so unsuccessful and America had become the light and the inspiration and the, and, the, and the model for the world and the glory of this country is her freedom. In his book, The, the Suicide of a Free People, Oz Guinness makes a statement, you cannot take freedom for, for granted. If you were to take the 10,000 years of recorded history of the human race and condense it into a 24-hour day, Freedom would be expressed and experienced in the last 30 seconds. The experience of freedom in human history is not to be taken for granted. It is an extreme accomplishment, rarely achieved, and hardly ever maintained. And that is the challenge of America, and that is the challenge of Christians in America, because I'll tell you this. We love our country. But this country needs Jesus more than Jesus needs this country. And when we say, God bless America, that's a prayer, not an order. There's a man named Levi Preston. He was a captain in the, in the regulars and fought at Bunker Hill back in 1775. Fifty years later, a young newspaper reporter was doing research on the American Revolution, and he interviewed Mr. Preston, and he said, I'm here because I want to know why you fought. Was it because of oppression? And Preston said, no. Well, weren't you oppressed by taxes? The Stamp Act? He said, no. Nah. Never bought one. Never spent a penny on a stamp. 
Well, how about the tax on tea, the tea tax? Wasn't that oppressive? He said, never drank the stuff. Besides, the boys all threw it into the bar in the harbor. What, weren't you fighting for the principles of liberty, Montesquieu, Burke, Lloyd? He said, no, never heard of the guys. We had the Bible. We had Maxwell's Psalms and Hymns and the Almanac. Well, this was, the little, this, this reporter was very frustrated by this. And he says, well, then what did you mean in your fighting? And this man said, what did we mean when we were fighting the Redcoats? Young man, we had always been free. And we wanted to be free always. Now, I want to capture that thought. Because what was moving our founders and what is the bedrock for this country is the idea not only of winning freedom, but in maintaining and sustaining the experience of freedom, not just for one generation, but for all generations. There are three aspects to that. There is the winning of freedom from oppression. And the last 230 years have seen many stories, tales of revolution to, in one way or another, dethrone the ancient regime. Winning freedom is the first step. And our Revolutionary War fighters, founding fathers, accomplished that against the largest navy and army in the world. When I was in school, I was told that the reason we won the Revolutionary War is because the English sent over their B team. That was wrong. As a matter of fact, I'm discovering that most of what they taught me in school was wrong. The English were serious about winning that Revolutionary War, and it's absolutely amazing that they pulled off why they did it. Took them eight years to win. It took them eight years to win that, that war of independence. It took them 13 years to come up with the Constitution. But that's another story. What they discovered, what were they aiming for, were three steps. You've got to win freedom. But Americans weren't the only ones who sought their freedom. The French did in 1789. The Russians did in 1917. The Chinese did in 1949. The Mexicans did in 19, around 1840. The French tried it again in 1830. You know, just for incidents, that Les Miserables is not about the French Revolution of 1789. Les Miserables is about that Revolutionary War revisited in 1830. And that's why de Focqueville came over here. But in the time that he came over here, the French had already gone through three constitutions. And we still had our constitution after 230 years. Now, de Tocqueville said, that is an amazing accomplishment. There are three things that were going on in these guys' minds. One, you have to win freedom. But secondly, you have to order freedom. That sounds almost like a contradiction in terms. How do you order freedom? Well, you provide those checks and balances to keep men and women who are hungry for power from exercising all the power that they can get. 
And we have, of course, a separation of powers in our Constitution. And that is a tremendous accomplishment. But that's not all they're doing. The ordering of freedom was so inclined that the, the people of the United States would be encouraged and engaged in governance at the very level of their existence, not just in some high and almighty lofty place called Washington, D.C. So not only do we have the Constitution, not only do we have the separation of powers, but we have the, the, the empowerment of the states to be independent, uh, relatively independent, to do so many things that they can do on their own, and the Founding Fathers didn't want the, the federal government to be involved in every aspect of our life. We have the states, and the states have their counties, and the counties have their cities, and the cities have their boroughs and councils. And it goes even to our schools. When I was in Yuma, the town council, I mean, I'm sorry, the city manager opined to me that there was a profound difference from the way that we train our children in our schools to be participating citizens in our democracy, our republic, as opposed to other people coming in from other countries. He said, when you go to school, you belong to different clubs. And every club has a president, a vice president, a treasurer, and a secretary. And every class has the same. And you have a student union, a student council, where you have a president, a vice president, a secretary, and your treasurer. And how many of you ran for those offices? I did. Got beat by one vote. But we structure, and he said that immigrants coming to this country do not have that experience of governing yourselves that begins even when we're in school. What de Tocqueville called the habits of the heart are ingrained in our people from the beginning that we might be participants in our government. This is a great accomplishment. Not only is it the winning of freedom, but it's also the ordering of freedom so that the impulses of people to power and authority does not become overwhelming to the citizenship. Winning it, ordering it, and there's a third part. Do you know what that is? Sustaining it. There are people who said the dream of sustaining freedom is a pipe dream. It will not happen. But even at the time of Abraham Lincoln said, the challenge for our country is the ordering of society, passing on the gift of freedom from one generation to another, so that the, 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 the trajectory of history might be reversed. Because the experience of freedom in human history is usually short-lived, but the hope of America is that it would be perpetuated. That freedom, once gained, once ordered, would be transmitted from one generation to another. Those are lofty thoughts. These are our inheritance. I want to ask you three questions, and these three questions undergird what I've just said, but they come from the gospel. From the gospel where Jesus is just coming back from the feeding of the 5,000. Thank you, Sarah. And he goes across the lake, and the people come there, and they can't find him, so they cross over to Capernaum to see what he's doing. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, what are you doing here? They say, how did you get here? He says, what are you doing here? I'll quote to you 
from what he says. Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For it is on him that God has set his seal. So here's the first question. What is the center of human personality? Is it your viscera, your pelvis, where Philippians says their God is their belly, the source of human drive and impulse and desire? Is the center of human personality in your, in your pelvis? Is the center of human personality in your head? Or is the center of personality in your heart? That's a huge question. And that's what this country is asking itself right to this day. What is the center of human personality? Now, I'll get to that question because the people came and they were, had just had their stomachs filled. You know, and for people who are destitute and poverty-stricken, filling their stomachs with bread is not a bad thing. But he says, you came here because you got bread. But I'm here about something more than just giving you bread. Now, I want you to know that the, the fulfillment of the gospel mandate is not exhausted by the establishment of food closets. You're not going to take people where Jesus wants to take them simply by meeting their physical needs. As a matter of fact, I'm convinced that any government that exercises its power mostly in the beginning by meeting people's needs will very quickly find itself in determining for people what their needs are. Jesus did not want his people to ground their relationship to him in their stomachs. C.S. Lewis wrote a book, have you read it? Called The Abolition of Man in which he lamented the shape of English education, where there's a huge accent on the visceral and the way people drive their drives, their desires, focused on their loins. And we're all familiar with that. I don't need to go into detail. He says, the center of human personality is not in your waist. He said, how about in your head? Is the center of human, the human personality in your head? And we are inclined to believe that. I mean, it is an incredible accomplishment of the mind that we have just had the experience of that spaceship going out to Pluto that's been on the way for 10 years, sending back pictures of that, that pseudo-planet uh, successfully. That is a great accomplishment of the mind. And we are captivated by accomplishments of the mind. And Bill Gates, an Apple computer, Steve Jobs, have capitalized that to the max. The accomplishment of the mind 
actually can easily enslave us. My secretary back in Fox Chapel had a girl who was a, a, a college student who loved her iPhones. And she said to her mother, she says, not only do I have an iPhone, but I have a, a laptop or what the latest, whatever that was. And she said, do you know something? Steve Jobs has us exactly where he wants us because my friends just can't wait for the next device to come out and they haven't even begun to figure out how to use the device that they have already. That's control. So is the center of human personality our minds? There's always somebody who has a better mind than you have. And C.S. Lewis says the great tragedy is we're looking for human personality in the pelvis and we celebrate athletics, for example, or in the mind, and we celebrate intellectual achievement. And he says it's neither. The center of human personality is in the heart. Well, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't just mean that the heart is the center of emotion. No, the heart is the center of relationship. It's where covenants are established and held on to. As I said, to, as Sarah said to me coming out this morning, she said, Marriage is not just a convenience of the body. It's just not the falling in love. The secret to marriage is covenant, where you make, a, you make your choice, you declare your choice, and then you live by your choice, because after you make your choices, your choices make you. And Jesus said, the center of human personality is not in your stomach. I fed you, but I want you to point to something else that's even more significant. I want to give you the bread of heaven, not just the bread for your stomachs. Got that? The center of human personality is in the covenant-making faculty of human personality to join into agreements and relationships. And the fact that God Almighty wants to enter into a relationship to us is a showstopper. Second question. What is the chief aim of ministry? I had a youth minister, a very successful youth minister, started the silver ring thing, and he said to me, Tom, the most important thing I can do is to get people into heaven. The chief end of ministry is to get people into heaven. Dr. Kennedy down at Coral Ridge Church had a whole program called Evangelism Explosion. Do you know it? He asked two very important questions of his hearers. Do you remember what that was? The first is, if you were to die tonight, heaven forbid, have you reached the point where you know that you would go to heaven? That's a good question. Have you? Have you reached the point in your life where if you were to die today, God forbid, that you would, your destiny and your home would be in heaven for eternity? Have you reached that point? And the second question is, if you were to appear before God and he said to you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And most people say, well, I've done the best I could. Hey, I'm a priest. I've been in the ministry for almost 40 years. Don't tell me you've done your best. <laughs> you haven't done your best. You see, you've done what's convenient. But what I'm saying to you is, you know, Kennedy captured the idea of the ministry's goal is to get you into heaven. That's not Jesus' goal. The goal of Jesus is not to get you to heaven. The goal of Jesus is to get heaven into you. The third question is, why was Jesus talking to these guys anyway? And I'll tell you the answer to that. He was talking to those guys the same way he talks to us.
because Jesus knew this. The harvest, the growth is in the harvest. Renewal is in the harvest. And Jesus was fulfilling what his father started in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where he was creating the Garden of Eden, which is not just a garden. The Garden of Eden is God establishing his dwelling place in creation. God fills the universe the way that your soul fills your body and you inhabit your house. But Jesus was taking it from the garden to the temple and from the temple on Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, to the temple that's in your heart. He wants to reside in your heart that you might be fit for that kingdom that the goal of the ministry is to get heaven into you. I had a friend who came from Argentina, but his parents were expatriates from England. And he was trained all of his life that when the time came, he would go to England to study. He was about 12 years old when he went. He crossed the Atlantic in a boat. And when he got there, he felt that he had arrived home because England was already in him. And that's our goal. Not just to get you into heaven, but to get heaven into you and to make you, make you and this place, not just individually but corporate, a place where Jesus makes us into living stones building his temple. Those three questions equip Christians to be the salt and light in a country that is losing and desperately losing its way. I have a grandson. He's six years old. He's all boy. And one day he went, ran from the kitchen to the, play, to the playroom. There's only one step difference. But his sister, I think, this is, we don't know, but I think because I know David, that his sister had a large rubber ball inflated. And I'm convinced that David looked at this and said, hey, I can turn that rubber ball into a trampoline, which is what he did. And he bounced and hit his head on a concrete floor and bruised his head and broke his skull and was very sick for several weeks. When his grandmother, Liz, went to see him, little David said to his grandmother, Grandma, I'm going to write a book, and it's going to be in British. And it's going to be about all about brain concussions and broken skulls. And you know something, Grandma, I'd better do it quickly before all that information leaks through that crack in my head. <laughs> and what I'm telling you this morning is just not a sermon. It's something that I do not wish that you would let slip through the crack in your skull. That the center of human personality is in the heart. The chief aim of the ministry is not simply to get you into heaven, but to get heaven into you. And that Jesus was talking to these people because the harvest 
The growth is in the harvest, and he's in the business of building up living stones into a living temple that can influence your town, your state, your country, and the world. Let's pray together. It is no easy thing for us to live in a country whose predominant value and love is freedom. And we do not take that for granted because we know that the author of our salvation is one who has prepared for us and wants us to be truly free. For freedom's sake, Christ died to make us free. And we have insights and doorways to heaven that no one else has. Help us not to keep that light under a basket. Let our light so shine that men may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.